For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he, as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have, we have from him, whoever love, loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Already by the time that John is writing his first epistle, some of the church has forgotten what it means to abide in Christ, or they've ceased to value it. And John writes, reminding the church what is actually involved, the components that are necessary to abide in Christ, instructs them toward this end. It caused me to think about how easily it is to forget certain skills and knowledge which equip us in. The Christian walk is nuanced. It demands thought and intentionality. The story that helped me to think about how valuable certain skills are and how we need to be mindful lest they be lost was that uh, the story that uh, begins actually in historians trying to figure out how the Pacific Islands were populated. And most historians really up through the 1960s thought there's no navigational system that explains how people migrated throughout the islands in the Pacific Ocean. And so they basically came to the conclusion that they were explorers, they were curious, they set out, and they ended up at different islands and populating those islands, but it was by accident. 
That was the reigning theory until in the Marshall Islands, a group of individuals were discovered who are called there uh, the Remito, which in their language means uh, seafarers. What they realized was that there was a, a group of individuals who carved out of this culture, and their job was to learn how to read the ocean. So I don't know anything about oceanography, but as I read, it says that great swells develop basically in four places on the earth. California, Alaska, Antarctica, and Indonesia. And these swells travel thousands of miles in the ocean. And when they hit an island anywhere, but particularly for this example, the Marshall Islands in the Pacific, some of that swell will bounce off the island and reverberate like a sound wave. And some of the swell will go around, but it will be curled, it will be angled, right? It will change the shape of the wave as it goes around the island. And so the Remita were trained from, from being very young, as they grew up, they were trained in this knowledge and skill of seafaring. And what essentially they learned was how to read the water and the waves, right? The distance between the waves and the angle at which they were coming and the strength that they possessed. And as a result of being able to see and feel this, they were able to navigate all of the Marshall Islands, which is an astounding feat. We have no idea how to navigate with all of our electronic devices and such. And there's only one Remito left, and they're desperately trying to ascertain and understand and record his knowledge and train others before this is utterly lost. And this very much is at the heart of what John is writing. In the sense that he said all throughout his epistle, I'm faithful to the message I heard from the beginning. And one of the things he stressed in that message that he has heard from the beginning is in John 15.4, which John recounts for us only of all the gospel writers that Jesus is the true vine. And in 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so central to John's theology, his understanding of what it means to be a Christian, is that we abide in Christ or God. He'll use the names interchangeably. And that as part of that, God or Christ abides in us as well. But John recognizes full well that not all of the church is being faithful in that. And frankly, I would argue today that much of the church has lost the skill to abide in Christ. Right? That we really don't know how to do that well. And perhaps it's not even a priority. Which is why we come back to the message that we've heard from the beginning and are reminded by the words of Jesus that we can't actually be successful in our discipleship. We can't produce anything until we, unless we abide in the vine. A branch that isn't abiding in the vine is a worthless branch. Right? So how do we aspire to be branches that actually produce fruit. Well, we see John's emphasis on abiding in verse 13. And you can look there with me. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Okay. Now, by this, right, is in part referring to what has come before. And John has offered to us two ways in which we have to be mindful to abide in Christ. The first of those ways is that we are expected and ha must have the ability to test the spirits. And the second way is that we must love one another. 
A failure to test the spirits, a failure to love one another, results in a failure to abide. And so we're going to take the passage just in that order. Number one, test the spirits. Number two, love one another. And number three, we'll come full circle to abiding in God. So what is this notion of testing the spirits? In verse 1, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind as we consider John's teaching on the false spirits. The false spirits are those characterized by ultimately the spirit of the Antichrist. And for John, what he's referring to first and foremost is those who have left the church. To start a church that is teaching a heretical teaching about Jesus says these embody the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the world. And remember, too, that John is very characterized, and we've mentioned this in the past, by dualism. It's an important part of his thinking and his writing. So there are things above and things below. There's light and there's darkness. There's life and there's death. There's the spirit and the Antichrist. Right? And for him, there are really only two spirits. The spirit of the Antichrist or the spirit of God. Those things that inform uh, things um, or teach things or articulate things that are contrary to Christ and the kingdom. And those things that do accurately portray the things of the kingdom and of God. And really for John, everything in the world belongs to one of these two camps. And the spirits can be in anything. For us today, they can be in music or a movie or a friend or someone teaching Right? And we're called upon to constantly evaluate what we're hearing and to discern what sort of spirit is in it. If it's the spirit of, uh, of God or if it's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, as we consider the spirit that's informing or coming out of the people who have left the church, we need to remind ourselves even just briefly of what they've been teaching, what John's been doing along uh, dealing with as he's proceeded along in his letter. Do you remember what they're teaching? What the secessionists hold? They deny that Christ was physical. Jesus was human, and the Christ spirit was something that came down on him and left. But Jesus himself, the human Jesus, was never the Son of God. And as a result of that, they deny the atonement. There doesn't need to be any physical crucifixion. And if you don't need that, you don't need sin. And they also deny sin. And John also holds that they have a a dramatic failure to love one another as a result of their teaching, that they're not loving the brothers and sisters with whom they have had fellowship. Okay, so we begin to recognize the spirit of the Antichrist, how it's playing out in the church that's broken off. Well, how do we discern the spirits, right? How do we tell even in general, which spirit is of Antichrist and which spirit is of God? Well, John gives us two points. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay. Right now, remember just what we've gone over in terms of the false church and the false teaching. Here, John is saying that you've got to remember, you've got to confess That Jesus is the Son of God, how? In the flesh. The human Jesus is actually the Son of God, which makes the atonement what it is, that Jesus would die a physical death. The other component is in verse 6, 
We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And so John says, A, the first criteria to discerning the spirits is to, um, is in verse 2, that you, that the correct spirits, the spirits of God, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. The second way, which is in verse 6, is that they listen to John. Now, what that means is not, John isn't saying in an arrogant fashion, I'm so important, listen to me. What he's argued throughout his letter is, I am teaching you what I heard in person from Jesus. That's what I'm handing down, the message we received from the beginning. And so if you're listening to that, you know that you're discerning the spirits well. You recognize the apostolic authority and the message and its consistency from the beginning, right? And you continue to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. Now, in the midst of this, John does a, a couple of really interesting things in the course of chapter 4. And one of them is in verse 4, where he just kind of pauses and gives a pastoral note to the congregation. Now, look at verse 4. He's going on about discerning the spirits and giving instruction about discerning the spirits and how you know. And suddenly in verse 4, he says, little children, which is a very, uh, it's a very loving, affectionate way to address the community of faith. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, referring to those who have left and started a different community of faith. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, if you're a good reader of scripture, a question that comes up is, okay, why does an author write that? Why does John suddenly feel the need to pause and say, hey, listen, my little children of whom I am I'm desperately affectionate, you don't need to be afraid. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Why would you take time? If you said something like that to your kids, why would you do it? Because you know that your kids are afraid of just that. Now, one of the things that we've seen, both in the Gospel of John and in John's letter, is that John gives us a glimpse of how much the Jewish believers are suffering persecution. They're being kicked out of the synagogue. They're being ostracized from society. We've mentioned this in the past. But imagine that you are a Jewish believer in the first century and have decided to follow after Jesus. The synagogue is everything. It is your hub of friendship, of relationship, of business, of fun, right? It's where you're going to host your various family parties and so on and so forth. And suddenly all of that is stripped away. On top of that, some of your friends in the church have left. They've gone and started a new community. And you know what? They've decided Jesus is negotiable and sin is negotiable and atonement is negotiable. And they've given up so many things that they don't really have anything that troubles the world. And so the world probably says to some extent, you can come back. You don't believe anything, all those things that those crazy, serious Jesus people do. And so you can come back into fellowship with us and we can hang out. You're not going to be cut off and ostracized anymore. And so the true church is looking and they're confessing that they've been victorious in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has conquered sin and death. And for their allegiance to this risen Christ, they're really getting the snot beat out of them. There's no tangible perk that you can identify as they're seeking to follow Jesus as culture, the world has turned against them, and those who have left their company are actually faring better than they are. 
And so they find themselves in a place probably of some fear, of some question. Is it really worth following Jesus if he's not delivering in the ways that we might like him to? Of course, it's always a challenge for us in our expectation of how we expect God to deliver. But this question must have existed. Is God present? Is he uh, victorious? And in, in the midst of this, John says essentially, don't, don't worry. I understand, but remember that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You've overcome them, and the victory ultimately will be yours. But and perhaps in the background, and perhaps we would say from a larger theological perspective, that God is up to things that, of course, they can't see in the midst of their immediate context. I've seen this play out lots of times in, in terms of contemporary times and people trying to discern the spirits. I knew a guy who had worked with youth in his church for years and years. He was older and in his 40s, and he always had a heart for youth who were in a particularly tight spot or who were struggling. He was also very tired in his marriage. And one day, just by happenstance, perhaps, or perhaps by the willing of some certain spirits, he stopped at a gas station, and outside the gas station was a pretty 20-something-year-old who was crying, having fallen on hard times. And so he sat down, and he listened to her for hours, and he, he had quite a bit of money, and so he met all her immediate needs and continued to minister to her over a period of time, to the point at which he said, you know, I've heard from God, and he's told me to leave my wife and kids and start a new family with this girl. Discerning the spirits. He would claim that, oh, this is a spirit from God. How do you then recognize that, no, it's, it's not really a spirit of God? Do we see Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, being glorified in that? Are we being faithful to the message that we have heard from the beginning? No, in both cases, in terms of that decision. But really, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this played out over times, right? A woman once said, I'm quite sure God is leading me to move to a cabin in the woods for an extended period of time to write, and my husband can take care of the four kids. Really? That doesn't sound like the Spirit of God to me. Or someone not that long ago said, you know, God's told me, The Spirit has communicated to me that I should buy this house and this pool because I've earned it. That doesn't sound to me like the Spirit either. So how do you know or how do you have a conversation about those differences? Well, surely what John is communicating to us, and if we took the message that we've heard from the beginning, I think one of the easiest ways to discern the Spirit is to ask simply this question. In whatever is being articulated, do you see the cross? The spirits of the flesh, the spirits of the world, left nothing more than to strip Christian discipleship of the way that we communicate Jesus to the world, which is by what? Picking up our cross and following after him. And if you strip the Christian of the cross, right? you strip the Christian of the message and proclamation of the kingdom to the world. On the other side of those who discern the spirits, I often think of a man named Henry Nouwen, who was a theologian in the past century. He died a few years ago and ended up teaching both at Yale and Harvard, right? You've really reached kind of the pinnacle of success in some ways if you achieve a professorship within the Ivy League at large and then certainly at Harvard and Yale. 
And eventually, Henry Nouwen started to get involved with a ministry to mentally handicapped adults. And he decided that for him, the Spirit was leading him to spend the rest of his life ministering directly to the people in these facilities and building relationships with them, for being primary characters for, for individuals right, who were um, in mental disabilities as an adult. Now, by the world standards, that's crazy. Right? There's nothing more successful than tenure at Harvard or Yale. But Henry Ann Allen said, no, the Spirit of God is found in this place, and he's leading me to minister in this way. And there I see the cross. Right? It communicates to me that it's of the Spirit of God and not of the Spirit of the Antichrist. So this is the first way in which we abide in Christ. Right? We learn to discern the Spirit's. But this isn't where John stops, right? We said there's two criteria, and the next one is that we love one another. This is actually a way by which we continue to abide. If you look at verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John makes the most profound statements about the nature of love. He's the only New Testament writer who will say emphatically that God is love, but he also tells us that this love, we experience God's love as we love one another. And as we are loved in love, we know that we're born of God and know God. It's almost as if there's some capacity in which we have to be loving others for Christ's love to flow through us. In the sense that the branch must be in the vine and growing in the vine. And there's almost this, uh, this movement of love that communicates to us our relationship with God even as we love one another. Now we might ask, what is the nature of this love? Right? Love is a word that has a very large semantic domain, and we can use it casually. And as John talks about love, is this the love I have for my favorite pen? Is this the love I have for my wife? Is this the love I have for my child? Is this the love I have for when the newspaper person delivers the newspaper on time in the morning? John tells us explicitly what kind of love he's talking about. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John doesn't leave us in the dark. He says, you want to know love? This is love. It's not a feeling or emotion, right? What he's identifying is an act on God's part to fulfill a promise that we might be delivered through the revelation of himself and his son. And so love is not just an act, though. If you look also at 10, or then 11, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, John says, this isn't only the way that you know love, as God reveals himself in the act of atonement on the cross, this is actually an example to you, or it's a paradigm for you. As you have been loved this way in Christ, now your role as followers after Christ is to love one another in the same fashion that you have been loved in Christ. What an incredible calling. What an incredible challenge. I almost, almost feel somewhat defeating. Right? Really to love one another? Right? The people gathered in this room, identified as a community of faith, to love and to lay down my rights and privileges to take the form of a servant so that you might be served and loved and grow in Christ and the kingdom might benefit from that. Now, there are all kinds of things that we could say in terms of, of love and 
thinking about love. Some of them are pretty straightforward. Right? But in this case, love has to be tangible. How often do we sometimes regress into making um, love and emotion? I remember one time a, a person had, had really uh, had offended me deeply and made a decision that affected my life pretty dramatically. And she said, but I just love you and your family. And boy, I didn't say anything at the time. I just moved on. But what I thought was, you don't get to say that. You've done a number of things here, but none of them have been love. Right? Because love is not what you feel inside, which is what you're referring to. Love is tangible. Love is a sacrifice in time and space. It's an, an act on behalf of someone. Right? A really fun exercise is to look at 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love that Paul writes and ask, how many of these things can you do alone? And how many of these things require you to be in relationship, relationship with someone so that you can act on their behalf? The majority of 1 Corinthians 13 requires you to be in relationship with someone. And so we could emphasize relationship. Right? You know, just to, you know, not, not to camp out on this point, because I actually want to camp out on another point. But the church so often reduces its relationship or its time spent together to an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Here's another fun exercise. Sometimes if you're working with a concordance or a study Bible or you're online, type in one another and search the New Testament and see how many of the commands to the church are phrased in this context of loving one another, serving one another, listening to one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another, forgiving one another. And then ask, how many of those things can I actually accomplish on a Sunday morning? In 15 minutes of fellowship outside in the foyer before leaving. In some ways, right, it makes the church impotent because we fail to carve out the relationship that's necessary to fulfill the basic commands of what it means to love one another. But what I really want to talk about, just briefly, is that when we talk about loving one another sincerely, very often an impediment to that is that we don't like to be loved by God. Right? The more deeply you are loved by God and run to that love and recognize that I don't have any way forward in this world apart from God's love for me, the, more, the easier it's going to be for you to love someone else. But if, when you think about God's love and move toward that love, you start to shrink back and think, well, that's pretty intense. And God's love is actually a tough love. Right? It's not this care bear love. Right? It's a love that actually costs because God's love is committed to cutting away your old flesh. God's love is committed to a part of you dying. And dying is never pleasant. But this is how the love of God is made manifest to us. Now, my favorite example uh, of this, of understanding the love of God, occurs in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And have any of you read it? Boys and girls, I'm particularly thinking of you because all of your parents should have read it and are sent home to read it. Okay, excellent. I see some nods and some hands. And so maybe you remember that as they're traveling all around the seas and visiting different islands, you remember Eustace, the cousin of Susan and Lucy and Edmund and Peter, and that he's not a very nice boy. He's actually quite unpleasant. And at one point, Eustace runs off into the hills. And as he runs off into the hills, what does he discover? 
Treasure. What kind of treasure? Dragon treasure, right? Treasure that's been guarded by a dragon. But the old dragon is what? Dead, right? You guys know the story. And so Eustace climbs up on the treasure and he falls asleep. And what does he think and dream about? All of the riches that he's just found. And all of the power and all of the things he can do with all of that gold and loot. And he falls asleep and dreams these dreams. And in the morning, he wakes up. But what has happened to Eustace? <laughs> he's turned into a dragon himself, right? All scaly and ugly and scary. And he can no longer talk. And he's got this armband that's cutting into his arm, right? Part of the treasure that he put on when he was a boy. And so he goes to his friends, and his friends can't do anything for him. And so he flees back to the mountains. And ultimately, who needs to show up to make Eustace new? Aslan does. And Aslan shows up. And what Aslan says is, says, listen, Eustace, you need to get undressed. And Eustace thinks, what does that mean? I'm a dragon. I'm not wearing any clothes. He says, oh, I must have to remove a set of scales. And so he, he scrapes at himself and removes a set of scales, but then he realizes there's a set of scales underneath. And he does it again. Same outcome. There's still, he's still covered in scales. He can't get the dragon skin off. And uh, this is how the story goes at the, that point. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. The only way that Eustace could be made new was allow himself to be loved by Aslan. But was Aslan's love tender and easy? No, I hurt. This is the first cut felt like it went right to his heart. But only Aslan could remove that scaly dragon skin and threw Eustace into the well where he's cleansed and out of which he emerges as a boy again, right? feeling back to himself. And in a really brilliant place, just a few lines after all this has occurred, Eustace is recounting the story to Edmund. And he makes the offhanded remark, when I tried to take off my skin, it didn't hurt. What a profound insight that so often as we approach God's love, we think, no, actually, I'll take care of this. But when we take care of it, it doesn't hurt because we're not that serious about seeing our old self die. We would much rather put some lipstick on our dragon skin, throw on a dress and go to Bible study, right, and pretend that everything's great, rather than to have, to let Aslan Christ put our old selves to death. But that's the love of God. And it's only when we move into that love that we're actually transformed. Boys and girls, after Eustace comes back as a boy, is he still the pain in the neck boy that he was before? No, he's new. He's changed, and he loves everyone around him because finally he's actually been loved. And this is what John holds out for us in terms of learning to abide. And that brings us full circle to abiding. Back to 
in which John writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And he goes on simply to reiterate what he said before. In verse 15, he says, again, confess Jesus as the Christ, right? In terms of discerning the spirits. And in verse 16, he again mentions the love of God. And by verse 17, he says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in the world. John, what's John saying? Essentially this. If you learn to discern the spirits and if you learn to live in God's love so that you love one another, you find yourself constantly abiding in the correct place. And if you find yourself abiding in the correct place, you don't need to be worried about judgment, right? which is exactly what those who have left the church need to be worried about. Why? Because this beautiful bit at the end of verse 17, because as he is, so also we are in this world. Now, the one who is in the world, right? the antecedent isn't totally clear what John is referring to by the pronoun he, but presumably it's Christ. And what John is saying, as Christ has been in this world, so also we are made in this fashion as a result of abiding in him and his love abiding in us. In short, what John is saying is if you practice these elements of abiding in Christ, you're going to get to the island that you seek. These are the skills and the knowledge that are necessary to navigate the seas that we travel in the midst of being in the already not yet and following after Jesus in discipleship and seeing his kingdom unfurl, but looking to a better country. And how do we move in the midst of that? We abide. We discern the spirits and we love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without instruction and pray that you would, your spirit would be upon us. Would you help us to say, see ways in which we have not done well at discerning the spirits? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the work of your spirit and to be faithful uh, to the leading of that spirit? And would you convict us and help us to repent where we have not loved uh, one another well? And would you help us to be honest and frank with ourselves and with one another that if we're not engaged in relationship and loving one another, then you've been quite clear that we really don't know what it is to be loved by you, and we certainly aren't abiding in you. We wish to grow, to mature, to know you more, and to love better. We ask that you uh, would lead us in this, that you would equip us in it by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.